Welcome back to episode 19. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Lauren. And this is A Place in the Courtroom. Do I normally say that whole thing? Yeah. I forgot our intro. <laughs> We're losing it. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. I think you've always said it. I do. I do. I don't know why I like was trying to say it and then I paused because I was thinking, oh my God, does Lauren say that? And Lauren does not know I say that. So welcome back to a place in the courtroom. <laughs> the there other day you introduced yourself to somebody and then you introduced me. You said, I'm Lindsay. <laughs> and I said, I'm Lauren. <laughs> and I think I did it like the podcast. And At was... least we didn't say this is a place in the courtroom <laughs> to somebody in person. Yeah, they would have been like, that's that's weird. It's a little weird. It is. Well, welcome back to episode 19. Um, We've had some horrible technical difficulties. It was easier, believe it or not, recording when I was in San Diego and you were here. It was much easier. We never had this many technical difficulties. No, no. but we're working on it. We think that this works. Thank you for bearing with us. Episode 18, the audio was not of the best quality. But we're working through it. So hopefully this episode is good quality. We recorded this episode a few weeks ago. And if for some reason we just, my mic wasn't on. And that's not I like think, a stupidity thing. That was literally like, it, we just were we trying to work it out. But we didn't change anything. That's the weird thing. So we ran three tests and then we recorded your episode. And then we just went straight into recording mine. Yeah. And something about it. Which, I mean, the like, audio in my episode wasn't amazing. It no. wasn't how we tested it. So, thank you for bearing with us. But, but like, we couldn't, I like, I could not hear you when I went to edit my episode. Yeah. Like, it was like, know. you just, you were in a different room. It was, I couldn't yeah. even, it, you weren't even registering. So, I don't know what happened. Well, thank you. If you listened to that episode, thank you. Yes. Thank you for bearing with us. And hopefully you enjoyed the bear post that we posted last week. We thought that was so funny. I know. Oh, our cat is going to join this episode. That's okay. She might, she might joined get, us for the original recording. She of did. This episode. Um, you might get some meows that might register. Maybe our mics will be that good that it can register the meow. Maybe. Watch. We're gonna go to edit this episode, and it's just gonna be the meow. <laughs> That's the only thing that registered is a meow. All right. Well, we had a fun adventure today. We did have a fun adventure today. We were we got together to record the podcast, and then what happened? Well, we um, have a 33 Ford and it's been running great. My husband got it running. We've been working on it. It's been a car that's been in his family for the last 50, 60 years. Um, And so it hadn't ran since the 70s. We got it running. I was all excited. I was like, let's take Lauren for a drive. And we made it around the block twice, like a big block. Yeah, it it was big. And then then we went to go see the other neighborhood and the car died. And then we had to push the car all mm-hmm. the way back to my house. And it was like 100 degrees. Yes. Yes, it is definitely 100 degrees. Um, the cat has decided she needs her own headphones and possibly a mic. Um, she's just with a tail in Lauren's face. Okay, she's that's, just she's here. That's that's where she's going to live. Okay. Anyway, it's been an eventful day. It has. But we're here. 
We are. And we we're are back. this again. With another episode about... The Osage tribe. Yes. So it is, um, if any of you have seen the new um, movie trailers that have Leonardo DiCaprio in it, uh, Killer of the Flower Moon. Sorry, I just got cat claw in yep. my leg. You've gotten clawed a couple times. I have. So it is a book, and that is the source that I used for this entire episode. And it was a really good book. Um, and that's what they're making into that movie. So I'm going to tell you guys about the Osage tribe and a little bit about their history. And so we are going to go back even into the 1800s, but really we were trying to be in the spirit of this episode because most of it takes place in the twenties and thirties. And in the book, there's a photo of a 34 Ford and we're like, cool, we can get in the spirit and then eat dinner and then record this. And we had an adventure. Yeah. So we're finally here. Okay. Are we ready? I'm ready. All right. So the Osage tribe was originally from a territory that stretched from Missouri and Kansas all the way down to Oklahoma and all the way across to the Rockies. So it was a very big territory. And this is back in before the 1800s. Um, it's a Native American tribe, so we are sticking with the Native American and Indigenous women um, month. We're just a month late, but we are still trying to raise awareness. And um, so that's that's kind of what we're focusing on. So in 1803, Thomas Jefferson purchased the territory of Louisiana, which, you know, we've all heard about in school, but that contained a lot of the Osage lands. And at the time of the purchase, they were recognized as a great nation. Actually, in 1804, a delegation of some of their greatest warriors went to the the White House, and everybody at the White House was just so impressed with the warriors and how, um, pretty much how amazing they were, how strong they were, how dignified they were. And so the White House, in the beginning... And our politicians really wanted to respect them, and they respected them as that great nation. However, that didn't last long. Within four years, the United States government compelled the Osage tribe to give up their territory between the Arkansas River and the Missouri River. And they didn't just ask. They threatened them and told them that if they didn't give up the land, they would be considered enemies of the state. And so over the next two decades, the Osage tribe gave up nearly 100 million acres of their land. Um, Ultimately, they were limited to a small area that was essentially 50 miles by 125 miles in southeastern Kansas. So that was what their land was reduced to. Big difference, which wasn't an uncommon situation back then at the time. No, it was not uncommon at all. So in the 1870s, they were ultimately driven to northeast Oklahoma. And what was happening is their land just kept getting encroached on. It kept getting smaller and smaller. And so the leadership of the tribe had decided that the area that they were currently living in, in the the Kansas area, it just wasn't working. Their graves were being plundered. They were forced out of their lodges that had... A lot of meaning to the tribe and was part of their part of their land um and so they chief thought that they would be happy 
if they picked an area of land in Oklahoma that was essentially rocky, it was worthless, it was kind of hilly, so they the the chief thought, well, if we go there, none of the settlers are going to want it because you can't farm this land. So that's where we're going to buy, so that's where we can stay. So they sold their land in Kansas for $1.25 an acre to settlers, and they purchased an area bigger than Delaware for 70 cents an acre and it was considered utterly unfit for cultivation so they started this mass exodus from their area in kansas all the way to northeast oklahoma and really that migration as well as a lot of the diseases that they were exposed to from the settlers um, really took a huge toll on the tribe. And by the time they got to Oklahoma, the tribe was only about 3,000 people, which was about a third of what it had been 70 years prior. Wow. Which, I mean, that's something that we hear about a lot is, you know, they were exposed to smallpox and all of these other diseases that they had never been exposed to. Yeah, because they were being brought from these other countries. That... Right. Exactly. And it just wiped out the a lot of the Osage people. So the Osage tribe, back before they had moved to Oklahoma, uh, traditionally they were very big hunters, and they would typically hunt buffalo. Um, And the tribe was used to doing a two-month-long hunt for buffalo, and that was a major part of, of their culture and how they fed the tribe. However, around this time, um essentially the the buffalo were no longer alive right the settlers had wiped those out too so it was really messing with the entire culture of the osage people yeah so um by the time they're in oklahoma the government owed them payment for the sale of their land however the government uh, attached conditions after the fact? Yes, after the fact. Pretty sure that's not how right? it works. It's not, not a great contract. Um, so they had decided that they would not actually pay the Osage people uh, until the men took up farming. What? Which they have land that is utterly unfit for cultivation. So they weren't going to pay them for the other property yeah. until they started cultivating their current property? Yep. Okay. And then... When they did actually pay, they didn't want to give them just money. They wanted to pay them with clothes and food rations. Okay, that's not part of the original agreement. No. So a lot of the tribe also ended up dying as a result of this. Many of them ended up starving to death. Did it say, was there pushback there when they tried to give them, when they weren't giving them money? Was there was there pushback? Oh, they tried. Or what, so did they end up having to pay them in that? Um, it ended up being the clothes and food rations. Wow. So, I mean, the Osage people tried and they definitely would, were very big throughout this entire thing on advocating for themselves or finding somebody to advocate, but it was not successful. So we are going to focus, um, on kind of a particular family is where this, this story and this case starts. Um, but I want to tell you a little bit about some of the towns that are going to repeatedly come up throughout the story. So in the the new Osage territory in Oklahoma, 
there's three separate towns that you'll repeatedly hear. So Pawhuska is the Osage capital. And in the like 1920s, it was roughly 6,000 people. There's another town called Fairfax that had nearly 1,500 people. And then Gray Horse was one of their oldest settlements. So you'll hear those repeatedly. Um, but we are going to start... Well, actually, I'm going to tell you a fun fact about Bahuska that we figured out in the last episode. Oh. You already know this. I've actually forgotten. No, no, I do remember. <laughs> okay, I remember. Okay. The pioneer woman lives there. Yes, that's right. So when we were searching it, trying to figure out how to say it, it popped up. And so you can go to Pawhuska, uh, Oklahoma, and go to the pioneer woman store. And I think she has like a hotel now and some other stuff. So if you're already planning to go to every location that we've talked about on this podcast. Because that, you know, tag us yeah. in that. Mm-hmm. We know that is like definitely the top of your, for your sure. to-do list for, for sure. trips. There's a lot to do in Fresno. There besides is. Besides go to murder scenes and yes. whatnot. Yes. And Reading. Yes. There, yeah. Do, please don't go visit the storage unit. Um, no. <laughs> a lot of these, please don't. Okay, so the family that we're going to cover, it starts off, the main person that you're going to hear about a lot today is Molly Burkhart, and she was born December 1st, 1886. Uh, She had three sisters, and each of them, you might notice their names are Americanized, so they do have traditional names, and I'm going to try to say them, but I am horrible at pronouncing normal words. Um, And so I'm going to try my best, but it is probably not pronounced right. But her name was Wa Khan Ta Hum Pa. Her sister was Anna, and her given name, um, her Osage name was Wa Hara Lom Pom. Minnie was Wa Shashi. And then Rita was Mi Si Moi Mi. And essentially what had happened was throughout this time there were settlers coming in onto their their territory and living with the osage people as well and her father actually hung out in front of a trading post and the trading post owner was the one who gave them their americanized names and they went by their americanized names which was pretty common at at the time right like there was kind of this movement where they were trying to i guess take away the culture of these native Mm -hmm. people by quote-unquote americanizing them right um, so in 1894, uh, Molly and her sister's parents were actually forced to send her and her sisters to a Catholic boarding school. So that was another thing that was happening is as they were trying to Americanize, um, the Osage people, they opened up a Catholic boarding school and they forced all the children to go there in Pawhuska. And even if you lived far away, so you had to send your kids to these schools and at the school, um, it, it was for that point. So yeah. to just kind of get them to, I, they couldn't speak their own language, right? Right. They were having to learn all of this new yes culture. Yes. In quotes. Yep. So they, you know, they couldn't even dress in their normal clothes. And so their, their traditional outfits were not allowed. Um, and many of the kids tried fleeing from, from the school because they hated it. And, it's actually reported that essentially the lawmen would go and rope the kids and literally haul them back to the school. They would bind them and haul them back. Oh, my gosh. Um, 
And so what ended up happening was a lot of these kids who are still, you know, relatively young when they're going to this boarding school, like Molly was only eight when she was sent there. A lot of the kids started wearing more Americanized clothes at home when they would come home for breaks. Um, And so she and her sisters went to school there. Around 1890, uh, the government had really wanted to break up the reservation into allotments, which would be instead of having a more communal style of living, which is what they were used to, they wanted to break up so that each family would receive 160 acres, and that would be their individual parcel, which the Osage people were not, did not want because it broke up that community. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of, you know, the way that they had, that was their culture, like you said. Right. Um, and so it would really separate everybody. People are going to be really spread out, and they just, they did not like it. So the Osage people had sent a lawyer, um, and their lawyer was somebody who had been adopted by an Osage family, so he was familiar with their culture and their customs. And this lawyer was sent to Washington, D.C., and he worked on negotiating the deal with the government. The deal ended up being that each family would receive 657 acres instead of 160. So substantially different. That's a lot. Yeah. A lot more. Um, and then he also included this really old, this odd provision uh, that allowed each or the tribe itself to keep the mineral rights. So any oil, gas, coal, or any sort of min- mineral that was found under their land was going to be held by the Osage people. Which is interesting because for anybody who's not familiar with the way that property works, um, or property transfers rather, um, just because you own property does not mean that you own what's underneath it and not even always what's on top of it, depending on what state you're in and how the water is. But Right. So like here, I know in California, um, like when we bought our house, it has an S at the end for surface. Uh Uh-huh. So, like, we've, none of our properties, we've ever owned what's under the land. Yeah, which, which is, is important. Normal. Yeah, normally you wouldn't even think about that. But if you're in an area where, say, there's oil under your, you find out you're digging and all of a sudden you right. discover there's oil underneath. If you only have rice to the surface, then what's underneath doesn't belong to you. I mean, you could find out that it belongs to someone's great, great uncle and it's passed along to them. So we had a case like that. Oh. So we had a case where um, there was an oil... It was an oil um, holding tank. And so the oil was pumped from like a completely different parcel and then was pumped underneath into this oil tank. And so it was a whole mess trying to figure out, okay. Who does it belong to? Right. We can find the surface. Yeah. But we had to track it and I had to track it and figure out who actually owned the mineral rights. We had a property hypothetical about that. Oh. Yeah. When you inject oil into someone else's property. Huh. I don't know if we even studied that in law school. I think I figured it out at work on that yeah. oil case. It's interesting. It's, it's interesting. Re- it is really interesting. If you want to read up on property law, yeah, go to law we, school. We, we can give you some we resources. We can prepare so that we can have a whole episode on property law. I know everyone's like so excited. We, we could. Just, we won't Because it's so fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he included this, this weird provision, um, which, you know, is typically not included. But... The Osage people, he kind of like snuck it in. The lawyer was smart. He just like snuck it into the agreement. What I don't think the U.S. government knew 
and I don't think he had any reason the attorney didn't have to disclose this, is the Osage people already had a pretty good idea that their land included oil. Underneath it. Underneath. Because they had discovered an oily sheen on their creek that was running through their land. And they already had a few drilling operations in place. And really, when they first saw it, they didn't know what it was until they were able to essentially dip their hand and figure out that that weird dark substance on their fingers smelled and kind of looked a lot like some of the grease on their cars. So that's how they were able to determine it. So what ended up happening was the land had a ton of oil underneath it. That's what happens. Which worked they out. Got, that was some good karma that they it got. It did. So it worked out great for the, the Osage tribe at the time. So what happened was every member of the tribe was on the tribal roll, which is like the official record for who is a member of the Osage tribe. And what ended up happening was each member who had a head right, um, which was a share in the mineral trust. So it's kind of funny because once Oklahoma was incorporated as a state, there was a rule that only the surface land could be sold. Hmm. Yeah, probably because they realized what happened. Right. So the Osage people were the only ones that, you know, they, they were the only ones that could have this mineral right. And it, they did allow, even though you couldn't sell the land, you could lease it to prospectors. So there was a ton of people who came in to um, want to lease their wells because they were high, they were so um, high producing. They had some of the highest producing wells in the entire country. One well had 680 barrels come out within 24 hours. Oh my God, that's a lot. It's a ton. And they said that when they were drilling, when they would hit oil, it would shoot straight up in the air 50 to 100 feet. So some of these leases ended up going, just the lease, for $14 million back then at its heyday. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And that's a year for a year? or Yeah, it was usually a year. Wow. So the Osage people had the largest, um, pretty much one of the largest oil reservoirs in the entire United States. And what was happening was by the early 1900s, each person who had a head right or was a member, a registered member of the tribe would receive a quarterly check for their oil, their oil, pretty much. At first, it started off as a few dollars, then a few hundreds, then it turned into thousands. In 1923 alone, the tribe took in $30 million. And that's in 1923. So when you do the equivalent, which the author of the book did, and the book was written in 2017, when the author did the inflation, it equated to $400 million. In one year? One year. Oh, my gosh. So they ended up being some of the wealthiest people per capita in the entire world by the 1920s. And it was kind of odd for a lot of the settlers because, unfortunately, a lot of the settlers had the perception that they were you know, uncivilized or really a second class citizen. Right. And I mean, we've, we've learned about that for a long mm -hmm. time um, with like the trail of tears and everything like that. So they called them red millionaires, not appropriate, no. not condoning this, but some of this yeah. language in here is, is what 
It's what they use what at the they, time. Yes. It's not okay, but to, for purposes of accuracy in the right. story. And a lot of the newspapers were commenting on, you had this really weird juxtaposition of like Paris fashion in an Oklahoma reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the girls were in the best boarding schools. Uh, they, at one point, there was a quote from a newspaper article that had said that there was a circle of expensive automobiles surrounding an open campfire where the bronze and brightly blanketed owners are cooking meat primitive style. So they would take, like, they had the cars, like the 33 Ford. Yeah. Um, theirs probably ran and they it didn't probably have to was push not, it. Yeah, it probably was not being pushed like that. No. Granted, the car is almost 100 years old. So... It was just kind of this weird, everybody had cars, they had multiple cars, they had the best of of everything. Now, some of the town elders really believed that the oil was a curse, though. And they thought that when the oil ran out, the people would be happy again. So some of the elders were still very hesitant. But our story is going to pick up back with Molly um, in the 1920s. And at that time, she was living in Gray Horse, Oklahoma. She had built a wooden house, but it was very close to her family's old lodge, which was the lodge usually was poles, it had woven mats, and it was bark. So very different. She's living in a, you know, a traditional house. She had several cars at that point, and she also had servants, which was another odd thing for the time, is a lot of the newspapers would mention that they would see African-American people, Mexican, um, or even white people as servants on the reservation doing jobs that the Osage people wouldn't do, which was a very strange concept for a lot of the people who would come onto the reservation. Which the fact that, I mean, that the fact that that was strange to society proves how problematic their perspective was of these native people because I mean, it goes to show like exactly like what you said, like they were not, they didn't see them as equals. They definitely did not. So Molly ended up marrying a white man. A lot of the Osage women did find, you know, settlers or, or people who would come into the area and they were married, marrying outside of the Osage people. So she married a white man named Ernest Burkhart. He was 28 And he had actually been born to a poor cotton farmer in Texas. And he had always heard of the Osage Hills and really was, um, I guess, drawn to it because it was still the very traditional American frontier. There was, they call it like cowboys and Indians, like that typical wild, wild west type deal. Which is a problematic perspective. It is. But at 19, um, in 1912, he went to Fairfax to live with his uncle. And his uncle, William Hale, was a cattleman who lived in the area, and he had really became like a surrogate father to Ernest. And he, Ernest had met Molly when he was actually her chauffeur. Oh. Yeah. So she, she married her chauffeur. And at the time, Molly, she knew some English, but Ernest actually studied her language to be able to talk to her. So he learned, which is really sweet. And... Molly kind of had some mixed emotions about marrying someone outside of her tribe. Her other sisters had also married, you know, white men. But typically in the Osage tradition, there's an arranged marriage. And so she kind of felt 
that maybe she should have had an arranged marriage or stuck with her beliefs, but she really did love Ernest, and so she ended up marrying him. And she kind of had a a mix. I think that's why she was able to marry him, is she still had a mix of Catholic and some of her traditional beliefs. So it wasn't just straight. Yeah. You know, Osage. And um, she had children with Ernest, and her mother lived with her. And her other sister, by this point in the early 1920s, Minnie, one of the sisters that we mentioned, had died of a, what they called a peculiar wasting disease. Okay. Not quite the same medical. <laughs> no. Not, not quite, um, you know, a proper medical diagnosis like what we have now. But she had only been 27 when she died. And it, oh. it was odd. It was concerning to the family because she had really just been in perfect health and then all of a sudden got sick and she passed away at 27. And that was odd to Molly because Molly had diabetes. So she kind of figured she would be the one to possibly have health issues that could lead to her death. Yeah. But Minnie had passed away. And so it was it was Ernest and then, you know, his family, William Hale, and then the rest of Molly's family that was around. So William Hale, he came in to the territory really with little more than just the clothes on his back and a copy of a really beaten up copy of the Old Testament. And he started as a cowboy on the ranch and he eventually hoarded and, and kept all of his money. And it was enough eventually to buy his own herd of cattle. He was successful for a little bit and then ended up going bankrupt. But he really had perseverance and he started again and he slept in a tent and he studied and really had a lot of experience. And he ended up being known as an expert in branding, dehorning, castrating cattle, as well as selling stock. Um, And he just eventually kept buying more and more land until eventually he had 45,000 of some of the best grazing acres in the area. And William Hale was married uh, to a school teacher and had a daughter. And after he had amassed his fortune and all of his land, he really started focusing on becoming a more powerful and a better person. And he really advocated for law and order. And he ended up being named a reserve deputy sheriff, which meant he was allowed to carry a badge and gun. He could lead posses on the reservation we're back to posses what? <laughs> not a common term anymore no but he could lead posses um since he kind of had sheriff powers he was really known to be generous he would donate to other individuals medical care if they couldn't afford it he was known to feed the poor and he was really called the king of the osage hills now on may 21st of 1921 Anna's sister, um, or Anna Brown, one of Molly's sisters, she had come over, um, she would typically come over to Molly's house a lot. And on the 21st, she, Molly ended up having a party at her house. It was a luncheon. And she was a little concerned on how, how Anna was going to be. Anna was very much more westernized than Molly was. She drank a lot was known to be drunk all the time even though it's during the prohibition oh in the middle of the day yes but. um she dressed flapper style uh so she wasn't wearing traditional clothes she had re- recently divorced her white husband so she was single 
And her servant leader said that she drank a lot of whiskey and had loose morals with white men. Okay. So. What a description. Right. So Anna showed up at this this luncheon. Uh, she was drunk, which I think could, Molly probably expected Not out of surprising. her sister. And so at the end of the night, really afternoon, after everybody left, Molly gave her food. She sobered her up and sent her home with her brother-in-law. Now, by the May 24th, three days later, Molly hadn't heard or seen from Anna, and she was beginning to get concerned. Typically, you know, Molly would expect her Anna to show up drunk on her front porch, uh, but she hadn't seen her in three days. So she started getting really concerned and... um, Molly actually sent her husband, Ernest, to go check the house. When they checked the house, the house was dark. All the doors were locked. And so Ernest came back home. Now, word started traveling around town that she was missing. And it was starting to get a little concerning for the Osage townspeople. Because another 30-year-old Osage member um, named Charles Whitehorn had disappeared a week before on his way from the southwest part of their reservation up to Pawhuska. He had just disappeared. So it was a little concerning for everyone that we now have two individuals that are missing. Yeah, multiple disappearances in a short period of time. Right. But Molly and the rest of the people thought, you know, Anna's sometimes not the most responsible person. She likes to have a fun time. You know, maybe she went to Kansas City or Oklahoma City to go drink and dance and, and have fun. Which, of course, this was the time... Way before right. cell phones. Right. Now everyone's got everybody's location and they can confirm things like this. But back then, I guess, there was really no way to know. No. Until they showed up again. So Molly, you know, thought she would be safe. Anna was known to carry a small pistol in her alligator purse. Yes, I said alligator. <laughs> she had an alligator purse. When you When we recorded this last time and you mentioned the alligator purse... I know that this is not what it was, but in my head, I'm imagining like an alligator head purse. Although I know that can't be correct. As I was taking my sip of drink and you started, I was like, I'm pretty sure I might choke and die when you finish this. I was able to to get my drink down. We're good. But no, it's not. No. If anyone's listening not. to this and they're confused, it does not look like an alligator. No, it's it's the material. The yeah. Alligator leather. Not to be confused. Yes. Yeah. In case that's not yes. clear. Okay. So a week after Molly dis- or Anna disappears, an oil worker a mile north of downtown Pawhuska found a rotting corpse that had two bullet holes in it, right between the eyes, execution style. Um, the body, when they found it, was so badly decomposed, they weren't able to ID it. But they did, you know, search through the pockets um, on the body, and they found a letter addressed to Charles Whitehorn. And so, unfortunately, Charles had passed away, well, was killed. He passed away. And the officials were able to determine that he was killed with a thirty-two caliber weapon. Now... Around the same time as this, there was a man squirrel hunting by a creek near Fairfax. <laughs> Wait, uh, what do you say? Man squirrel? <laughs> I heard that as 
a man scroll. Sorry. Oh my god, I think we're delusional today. I think we had too much sun exposure. We did. We were in the sun today and I have knee sunburns. Just my knees, guys. Just my knees. And to, to make it better. And brain sunburns, apparently. Yes. To make it better, my jeans were ripped. So, so I have lines on my knees. And this is not this is not some like fictitious creature that we're learning about right now. This is not a man squirrel. It is not a man squirrel. Okay, okay a man was squirrel hunting. There we go. He was not hunting a squirrel man. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So, Sorry, everyone. He's he's hunting near Fairfax with his son and a friend, and. <laughs> Okay, sorry. We're going to have to note this time. Oh, no. I think we leave it. (laughs) I think we just... Everybody else can... While they're laughing. Or all of our followers are leaving. Yeah. (laughs) Could be happening. Everyone can be like, all right. Everyone's like, I'm done. I couldn't make it to episode 20. Okay. We only made it to 19. All right. We're ready. Sorry. (laughs) So the kid chased a squirrel. Okay, Okay. there we go. (laughs) Live squirrel. Live animal squirrel. Okay. Into the ravine near where the creek is and all of a sudden the kids started screaming and it turns out <laughs> you're like melting in your chair what is going on i'm just laughing i just can't stop laughing thinking about <laughs> because he saw the man squirrel <laughs> in the ravine <laughs> okay i'm done okay all right are we done i'm done okay all right okay okay right. we're gonna compose okay so the kids screamed because there was a dead person down in the ravine. So the man r- jumped back in his horse-drawn carriage and raced back to town to find an undertaker. Uh, and the body, when they found it, it had been out in in summer. Um, and so they found an undertaker who tried placing it on ice and salt, which I learned that if you do that, it will draw the fluid out of the body. Really? And make it not as swollen. Huh. Except the thing is, is when I say the undertaker tried placing it on ice and salt. We're not talking about like the devil. No. <laughs> That's one thing. Second, I'm not. There's no morgue. They, oh. They did this in the ravine. Oh. So the ice and the salt and the undertaker and everything else went to the ravine. Like a mobile morgue. Yes. Now, the undertaker was trying to ID the body because he knew Anna Brown personally. But honestly, the body had been sitting out for so long that it was too badly decomposed to identify and had actually started turning black um, from, from decomposition. And Molly came out, her sister came out to the ravine and Molly was able to recognize her because of her clothes and an Indian blanket that she was wearing. Um, Also, somebody else was able to identify Anna based on her gold fillings that were in her teeth. So the coroner decided to convene an inquest. And this also happened at the ravine. So they brought a judge, a justice of the peace. Oh. And jurors. What? To the crime scene. Okay. To be able to um, start identifying. 
So they didn't have a police department officially yet. It was kind of still, we have sheriffs running posses. We have this justice of the peace. So the jurors were really set to determine whether she died, Anna died, as an act of God or an act of man. And part of that was the doctor led an autopsy. Right there in front of the jurors? I don't know if it was in front of the jurors, but it was in the ravine. Okay. Now, they were able to determine that she had been dead for five to seven days. That's That was what they were able to determine for time of death. And she had a perfectly round hole in the back of her skull. And they were able to take measurements and determine that it was a 32 caliber as well. Same as Charles Whitehorn. Obviously, they don't have ballistics yet to like actually say if it's the same gun, right? But it's looking a little suspect. So the town did have an official sheriff. And he was 58 years old. He was known to be a 300-pound frontiersman is how he was described. However, he wasn't exactly the best law enforcement agent. Uh, He was known to turn his eye to certain crimes. Um, And the Osage people at one point actually passed a resolution to try to get him to enforce the laws because he was doing such a bad job. I, I mean, yeah, laws are there to be enforced. Right. Like maybe that's your entire job. Yeah. Law enforcement. Right. It's not very um, clear from the name. Yeah. So he, he was not doing so hot. But he did send a deputy down to get air, to get evidence along with the town marshal into the ravine. And the best that they could come up with is they believe Anna was drinking moonshine, which she was known to do a lot, sitting on a rock down in the ravine. And someone shot came up behind her and shot her in the head. And once they identified her, right, the family was going to try to bury her. And one of the things was the Osage people would get completely ripped off by any vendor, anything like that, because they were trying, they knew they had so much money and they didn't really have other options of where to go. Molly ended up paying $6,000 for Anna's funeral, which was equivalent to 80000 in today's money. Oh my gosh. For a funeral. Yeah, that's insane. And the thing that they would do is they would price every little thing. Like they even priced out and charged for the gloves that the grave digger was going to wear. Like it got that technical. That feels very unnecessary. Yeah, it was just they were scammy. Mm-hmm. And so she was able to be laid for to rest. Uh, William Hale and Ernest uh, were able to, you know, be the pallbearers. And um, so she was able to be buried. Now, after the inquest, the sheriff ended up detaining Ernest, so Molly's husband, and his youngest brother, or younger Brian, younger brother Brian, there we go, I can talk, younger brother Brian, um, because Brian was the one who had driven her home from Molly's that day. Oh. So they thought, well, you know, she was last seen with him, um, but they were able to ultimately clear him and they released him. They leading theory kind of that was going based on the inquest was that somebody had killed her and that somebody was somebody from outside the reservation. That was a really bad way of saying that. No, but I thought was, that made sense. Okay. It was somebody yeah. from outside the reservation. Well, that, I mean, that is kind of historically what's been the case, mm-hmm. right? You're right. And when they were going through all of this, they ended up realizing they didn't have the bullet. 
And they actually dug her up after she was buried. They dug her up to check for the bullet, but they still were not able, able to find the bullet. By July 21st, so just a few months after her death, the Justice of the Peace ultimately came to the conclusion that she died at the hands of parties unknown. And they kind of just let it go. Now around while this is all going on, Anna's mom, Anna and Molly's mom, Lizzie, was really starting to get sick. And she was just getting sicker day by day. The family was beginning to think that she had the peculiar wasting disease as well. The same thing that that um, their other sister, Minnie, had had. And ultimately, Lizzie ended up dying um, in July of 1921. So it was not a good summer for the Burkhart family. And after Lizzie died, though, Molly's brother-in-law, Bill, really started beginning to wonder if something actually happened to Lizzie, and that's why she passed away. And fun thing about Bill, he had been a horse thief. Hmm. Yeah, he was a horse thief. Okay. Um, And then... He was not a horse that was a thief. No. Okay. I know, it's a little confusing. <laughs> No, I'm just picturing a talking horse being a thief. No, this is how this this episode's giving insight into what I hear as we discuss cases. And our true personalities. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, what we're like. Okay. So Bill had married Minnie, and then after Minnie died, he then married her sister Rita. Wait, what? Yeah. His okay. sister in law? Yes. He married his sister in law. And okay. <laughs> he went from being a horse thief, right? to being supported by Minnie when he had married her. And now after Minnie's death, he had her head right because the head rights you could inherit. Mm. So he was fine. He didn't have to go back to thieving because he was able to live off of, of Minnie's head right. Plus Rita also had now had a head right. So he had two incomes. That doesn't sound right. Right? Okay. That sounds like he's, that's, that's still thief behavior. It is. But Minnie was getting suspicious with Lizzie, and there was no natural cause of death that any doctors could find. And so Bill started investigating on his own, and he was able to determine after talking to some of the local doctors, he talked to a local investigator, he ended up determining that likely Lizzie had been poisoned. Oh. And he told the authorities about this, but nobody ever did anything. Nobody investigated her death. Nobody really did anything. So the family uh, took it upon themselves along with the Whitehorn family. They both offered a reward. And they were offering between, you know, $2,000 and $2,500, which is a pretty decent. That's a big amount for the time. Right. And ultimately, William Hale, um, you know, Molly's husband's uncle, ended up recruiting a private investigator named Pike from Kansas City. And Anna's estate also hired a private investigator because people were getting concerned about all of this death. All of this death. And another super fun thing is that the U.S. government had decided that the Osage people weren't smart enough to manage their own affairs. They actually had them deemed incompetent. Jeez. And so they had to have a white guardian to oversee this. And so the families had to get permission in order to offer the reward or really pay for anything. They had to get somebody's permission. So they're just like, we're ignoring 
that all of adults. these amazing things that they have done. Yes. And the history of culture and the fact that they have been able to accumulate such significant amounts of wealth. Yes. Because of their savvy business. Yes. Minds. And yet now they're incompetent. Right. So no. Anna and Lizzie were both under this. Um, and it was so bad that literally, like, if you went to buy toothpaste, it had to be approved. You couldn't even buy basic necessities. Because they, they realized that they were not going to be able to control them. Right. And that's what they wanted. They wanted to control them. And it didn't really matter. Like, they had members of the Osage people who had fought for the U.S. government during World War I. Um, they weren't even allowed to sign their own checks. Yeah, I feel like there's not a lot of logic about what you can no. do in the military and then what you can do when you come back. Yeah, so there's but, just... Yeah. Yeah, they weren't allowed. Um, and it was so bad that it wasn't just like, okay, the U.S. government says, yeah, you have to have um, a guardian. Congress would review the spending. What? Don't they have better things to be doing? Right. So Congress actually had, this is the most, the most ridiculous example that was in the book, was Congress had um, reviewed a $319.05 bill that Lizzie had incurred at a butcher shop before she had died. And, like, the actual bill was attached as an exhibit that and this Congress, is Congress got. The Congress, the Congress. The Congress of the United States is discussing her meat purchase. What year was this? In the like 1920s. I feel like they had way bigger fish to fry. Right? So the family somehow was able to hire this private detective. Um, and one of the detectives that ended up being hired was William Burns. And while private detective sounds good, he was a little suspicious. So he was known to have rigged juries in the past. Oh. Kidnapped suspects. Um, and he's actually broken into offices to steal evidence before, too. Okay. Is he just committed to his job? I don't know. It's like a very zealous detective. Yeah. So he did start investigating this case, and he had talked to a servant who had gone into Anna's house after she had disappeared. And the servant had reported that everything was there except her alligator purse, which was on the floor of her home. It was torn open. Um, like, everything was torn out of it. And so they were able to piece together from this that she had at least returned home after the luncheon at Molly's. Yeah. And then they were able to look at phone records somehow. Um, and somebody had picked up a telephone call inside Anna's house at 8.30 at night. And this detective started trying to follow Anna's ex-husband. Because, right, it's always the ex-husband or yeah. the husband. Mm -hmm. And so they started following him. And one of the detectives, the private detective, ended up befriending him. Because they were trying to get information. Yeah, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Exactly. Then, while this whole thing's going on, while they think maybe it's the ex-husband, this random woman ends up confessing to her murder. What? Yeah. So they confess to the murder, 
And this woman says that Anna had tried seducing her husband, so she shot her. Mm, okay. Now, there's also another problem. There's what? other witnesses that said that there were two men from some of the oil camps nearby had been seen with Anna before her death. So there's just really... Everyone's coming forward. Yeah, there's no definitive answer. And the ended up, the detectives ended up installing a listening device, but their bug back then was called a dictaphone. Oh. Dictograph. Sorry, dictograph. dictograph. Even older. Right. Um, and they were able to talk. They found the cab driver who, was, who drove Anna to Molly's that day. And that guy gave even more confusing information. He said that during the uh, ride over to Molly's house, Anna had confessed that she had been pre- she's pregnant. Oh, that's a plot twist. But nobody knew who the dad might be. Hmm. So that kind of just raised another suspect. But yeah, they don't who know could who could this person it be is. that could possibly have a motive. Right. And after nine months, there were no leads, and the detectives ended up just stopping the investigation. And Ultimately, that sheriff, who was awful, he ended up being removed by a jury for failing to enforce the law. What a concept. Right. Now, that next February, there is a 29-year-old champion steer roper named William Stepson. And he had received a call that he needed to leave the house, his house in Fairfax. And when he returned from Fairfax... Uh, to his families, to his family later, he was visibly ill, completely different than when he had left that morning. And without, within a couple hours, um, he passed away. And they ended up examining him, and they believed that he had been poisoned by strychnine, which it's a poison. It's well known. Um, but essentially, it's a horrible way to die. What it ends up doing is it ends up creating shakes. Like you start shaking. Um, your muscles start going really stiff. Your muscles will end up spasming. And your head pulls back and your spine stiffens. And this happens over and over until the person suffocates. So not not a pleasant way to die. No. And at the time, there was technology to test for poisons post-mortem. But the local coroners that most, you know, most cities and, and little towns and villages had, they weren't trained. And the problem was back then, a lot of these poisons were readily available just at the general store. And so it's not like now where they're much harder to come by you know it it really takes getting creative to be able to get your hands on some poisons nowadays and the other thing was a lot of poisoning deaths mimic other diseases or infections that were very deadly back then plus since they were bootlegging all of their alcohol your bootlegging moonshine that can actually be really dangerous Oh, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of stuff now. I mean, there's still a lot of stuff we do that's dangerous. But I mean, there was like arsenic in paint yes. back then that was and making lead. people sick and lead. And so I mean, th- right. there, it would be hard to pinpoint exactly what it was that killed yeah. somebody, especially without advanced testing. And yeah, 
and the bootlegging, like you don't really know if you have a good or a bad batch until you try it yeah. and possibly go blind or die. So they didn't really, they weren't able to test and determine, you know, what caused William's stepson to die. A month later, though, on March 26th of 1922, another Osage woman ended up dying of a suspected poisoning. And again, they weren't able to test. There was no testing done. But that's what was suspected. On July 28th of the same year, another Osage man named Joe Bates took one sip of his whiskey, his bootlegged whiskey, began frothing at the mouth, and died. And these aren't just... The, like, I'm not telling you um, all of the deaths. Yeah, but I mean, even this amount is... Uh, it, it's so much should, Someone's eyebrows should be raised right. at this. The amount of deaths that seem to be kind of the same manner. Right. So there's many, many deaths that are just starting to get super suspicious. There is an oil man named Barney McBride, who was a white man, but he married a Creek Indian, which was another tribe um, or or indigenous people that were nearby. But he was very trusted by the Osage people. And Barney was sent to Washington, D.C. to ask for help because they noticed the Osage people were starting to notice there's a ton of people that are dying. People are starting to get scared. They're not really trusting anybody. And so they sent this man to, they thought, with his connections, he would be a good advocate for them in Washington, D.C. They, he found a telegram that told him to be careful He went outside and somebody ended up tying a burlap sap on his head Um, and he ended up being stabbed more than 20 times. He was found with his skull beaten in and he was stripped completely naked except his socks and shoes and one of his cards was shoved into the sock. Oh my gosh. And they ended up believing that whoever murdered him had actually followed him to Washington, D.C. from Oklahoma. Yeah, because he he was about to expose the truth. Yes. So this murder ended up making national news. And it made its way back to the Osage tribe. And they got even more freaked out. Because now this happened to the person who's supposed to be going to try to get them help. Yeah. And he gets attacked and suffers this horrific death. And unfortunately, the deaths continue. On February, in February of 1923, hunters near Fairfax found an abandoned car, and when they got closer, they saw that a man had been fatally shot in the back of the head. However, oddly, there's no gun in the car. Hmm. And the body had been, bar- had been actually mummified because it was so cold because it was in the middle of winter. And this man that they found ended up being identified as Henry Roan, who was a 40-year-old Osage Indian um, who was or Native American who was married with two children. And the lawman went back to Fairfax and had notified the Justice of the Peace and the mayor of Fairfax, who was William Hale, or Ernest's uncle. Roan had, as they, they were going through this, they ended up determining that Before his death, Roan had actually sought out help from William Hale with money advances. And since William Hale had given him and loaned him so much money, Roan had actually listed Hale as the beneficiary of his $25,000 life insurance policy. Wait, what? Yeah, so Hale was the beneficiary 
for the life insurance. That sounds kind of suspect. It does. But he had been so generous. He had helped him with all these money advances. And so I think it was kind of like a way to protect his investment in case something happened, which unfortunately it did. So they ended up figuring out that the bullet that had killed him went out his right eye and actually had shattered the windshield of the car he was in. And odd thing about Roan, he is Molly's (laughs) ex-husband. So she had been 15 when she got married to him. Oh. And likely they think it was probably an arranged marriage with, yeah. with the Osage customs. Um, but because it had been a tribal marriage, it was not legal. Um, and so her husband didn't know that she had been previously married and none of the authorities knew. So nobody like tied it back to her family. So this just keeps increasing the fear as more and more people start dying start dying and bill and rita molly's sister and her her husband started hearing people outside of their house and they lived out in the country on their own land there's no neighbors really around close by but they started hearing noises outside at night oh heck no yeah so they would hear rattling and then it would stop Mm-mm-mm. And then they'd like hear more rattling and they'd go outside, can't find anything. So it's just getting creepy. Yeah. They ended up getting so scared that they fled their house, leaving most of their belongings. Yeah, that's what I would They kind of just packed up and went and they ended up moving into the center of town. So they moved into the center of Fairfax and they thought that this would be safer because there's plenty of neighbors around all the neighbors had dogs so they figured if somebody comes to close to their house the dogs are going to bark or a neighbor's going to see something and so people would get get discouraged right to try to mm-hmm. to harass them if they're around others even after they moved though they had a man who came up to the house and was asking questions where the Bill and Rita pretty much just thought he was trying to case it. Yeah, no, that's scary. Then it starts getting creepier when all the neighborhood dogs start being found dead on porches or in the street. Yeah, this is where I move out of the town completely. Right. So in the middle of the night, around 3 a.m., a loud, loud explosion is heard throughout the town. And so throughout Fairfax, and it was so bad that the explosion actually bent trees and signposts. It blew out windows. Um, The Fairfax Hotel was, there was a night watchman. He was actually thrown to the floor after the window that he was by. It shattered and like flung him. Oh, geez. Um, There was another guest who was blown inward. It broke the doors on some of the houses that were nearby wooden beams were cracked and it ultimately be ended up being bill and rita's house and even their car was completely destroyed from the blast so the the first responders the very limited first responders that yeah. they had back then the first and only responders yes ended up arriving at the house and they believed that a bomb had been planted under the house in the basement and had been detonated And as the officials are starting to go through 
you know, kind of trying to figure out, can we find anybody? Can we find any bodies? They start hearing and they're trying to search. And so they, they start digging through, trying to figure out where this help sound is coming from. And they end up finding Bill and Bill's legs were completely seared oh. um, from the explosion and the fire and along with his back and his hands. Now they found Rita and she was laying next to them and they couldn't really tell her injuries until they lifted her up. Um, and she had sustained a really bad injury in the back of her skull. So while they're doing this, Bill is essentially in so much pain. And after he found out that Rita had died, he pretty much asked for a pistol and said, like, if you have one, just give it to me. But he, you know, they were able to take him to the hospital. They had set armed guards near him in case somebody came to finish the job. Yeah, because at this point, obviously, they are a target. Right. Obviously, there's something going on. Right. So he ended up dying 14 days later. Um, and then they were able, never able to find the servant that lived in the house with Bill and Rita. Um, and the best that they can, they, or what they think happened was because she was so close to the explosion, it essentially blew her up. Yeah. Um, so there you have that death or deaths. And then in June of 1923... Uh, George Bigheart, who was the nephew of one of the Osage people's legendary chiefs, James Bigheart, he ended up starting, he started getting sick and he was showing signs and they believed that he had been, he was suffering from, good Lord, suspected poisoning. Um, And they had rushed him to a hospital in Oklahoma City to try to help him. And one of the attorneys in Fairfax was called and his name is Vaughn. He was called to Big Heart's hospital bed. And he before he left to go to Fairfax, Vaughn had told his wife that he had various hiding spots. And that is where he kept all of the important information. And he thought it was information about all these murders. So he had been sort of investigating. And he said, if anything happens to me, told his wife before he left, go to my hiding spot grab everything and take it to the authorities. And so when Vaughn was able to get to the Big Heart's hospital bed, he was able to get there before Big Heart ended up passing away. Um, Big Heart gave him information. He started giving him incriminating documents um, and he was able to have a conversation with Vaughn before he died. And so after Big Heart passed away, Vaughn telephoned the new sheriff that was on the Osage um, reservation And he told him, I have all of this good incriminating info. I have documents. I have all sorts of information. You know, I am on my way back. I am catching the first train. We need to talk. And he said he knew who killed Big Heart and many more of these murders. So he hops on the train and it was an overnight train. He was seen boarding the train. However, when the train arrived back by the reservation... Vaughn's not there. Of course not. His clothes are there, but he is not. Of course not. People have a way of disappearing in this story when they get information. They definitely do. 
So he ends up, they end up finding that he has, his clothes are still on the train. But they start just investigating, trying to figure out, obviously, where did he go? Because he got on the train and there were no other stops. And he's not on it anymore. Right. So they start investigating and they create search parties. And these search parties go out and they start looking, trying to figure out, you know, where during this trip could he have possibly gone. And so the search parties are starting to to look. Even the Boy Scouts, one of the first Boy Scout troops were... Oh, um, cute. Yeah. One of the first Boy Scout troops were actually... Out on the Osage, near the Osage Reservation. Trying to solve a murder? Yes. So for some reason, we're letting kids try to find somebody who may or may not be alive. Well, Um, if law enforcement's not doing it, someone's got to do it. I wonder, did they get like a special patch if you find a body? Is there like a Boy Scout pouch for that? I'd imagine not. I'd imagine that's not something you want to remember. No. Is it like a law enforcement assisting or something? Like a, a what's that program? The Explorers. Yes. Where like you want to be law enforcement. Yes. So you get to you get to be an explorer. Okay. But it always reminds me of up with the wilderness must be explored. Ka ka rawr. No? The cat just looked at you with such judgment. <laughs> I am getting glared, guys. Oh, God. Oh. She's ears are back. Yep. Okay. But yeah, I'd imagine like probably probably not going to be a body finding <laughs> no, patch. probably not. Okay. Either way, unfortunately, 36 hours after he was supposed to arrive, they found Vaughn's body and he was lying by the railroad tracks um, and he had been actually thrown from the train. So how do they not check along the railroad tracks? Like, is that not the logical place to start? I think they did, but they were trying to like figure out where between oh because i guess there was a pretty big distance right so they found him his neck was broken but they weren't really sure if that had happened before or after right because he'd been thrown from a moving train so i I feel like regardless he's gonna have injuries (laughs) i mean well regardless why was he thrown right so maybe he fell off they're not really sure except oddly enough he was also stripped naked Almost naked, except for, like, the shoes and socks. I mean, I just really think at this point, foul play should be the default. Yeah, probably. So all of those documents, though, that he had called the new sheriff and said, hey, I have all these really good documents, all of those documents are gone. They are not with him. They are not on the train. They are not on his body. So the documents mm, are gone. Well, this is kind of narrowing our suspects, because if he was the one who knew and he had contacted the sheriff... Right, so somebody had to know. Exactly. Unless they're following him. Oh, yeah, or they're listening. They could be following him. Um, And so his wife, as soon as she heard the news, she immediately, you know, went to that safe hiding spot to try to grab all the documents to take to the sheriff. And by the time she got there, everything was gone. Okay, how is that? It's like superhuman ability to, like, find all of this stuff back when, like, you can't tap phones. There's no. no text messages. There's no... I mean, this was all... This had to be an extremely coordinated effort it amongst was. many people. It Yes. The body count ended up being, by this point, around 24. But they think possibly it was much more. I'm sure there's more. Um, but 
there was such danger now with, you know, it's not just the Osage people dying. It's anybody who's trying to help them or trying to investigate these murders. Trying to expose the truth. Right. Are ending up murdered. And so it ultimately ended up discouraging the local government or the local authorities. They wouldn't even investigate because they were too scared. And so the Osage people were trying to figure out who in the world is going to help us. And they ultimately ended up concluding that it would be, it's going to take the U.S. government. Somebody, it's not going to be somebody local. The U.S. government is going to have to get involved to try to help us. And so the tribal council ended up passing a resolution to request help from the U.S. government. And by this point, Molly's terrified. Um, She's now had two, three sisters die. In horrible, crazy ways. Right. Her mom's dead. Um, Somebody broke into her car at her house. So that scared her even more because people were starting to come and, you know, come and start harassing her. And so William Hale, when he was at the bomb site, he ended up hearing, um, after seeing it, he heard that there were a band of outlaws that were planning on robbing a store in town. And he ended up taking it upon himself and he went and laid in wait and he shot the men in the store when they came in. Hmm. And it ultimately ended up being an an associate of this big outlaw in town who uh, was very involved in bootlegging moonshine. And his name is Grammar. And the odd thing was that that is where Anna would get her whiskey. So Grammar had a tie to Anna. Hmm. And it was also immediately where Bill had been right before the bombing. Interesting. So after Hale kind of thwarted this plan to steal diamonds of all things, because apparently at the general store you keep diamonds. Makes sense. Right? Um, after that, Hale's pastures ended up being set on fire. Oh. And it had, um, it burned like miles upon miles of his land it ended up burning some of his cows. And so there was just a lot of his cows ended up being dead. And so after all of this, Molly really started getting concerned and she began locking herself away. She gave her youngest child away. Oh, because she didn't think that her child would be safe. Well, I guess giving away is a strong word to say it. She sent her child to be raised by somebody else because she didn't want the child around her. Because yeah. she thought she was next. Um, and during this time, her diabetes were, was also starting to get to get worse. So the Osage people, though, when they had requested the help from the federal government, the Bureau of Investigation, which is now our FBI, FBI oh. this is the start of the FBI, they ended up sending agents to come into town. And the main agent was a man named Tom White. And Tom White was a special agent in charge of the Houston office in Texas before he received word from Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1925 that he needed to go to the Osage Reservation. Prior to joining the Bureau in 1917, he had been a Texas uh, ranger. And 
when the FBI started in 1908, it had no arrest power. Their agents could not arrest anybody. Huh. So what would they do? They only could investigate. Oh, I guess that's kind of in the name. They were essentially the fact gatherers. That is all they did. And the Osage people, in order to get the help from the federal government, they had to actually help fund the investigation. What? Yeah. So they paid $20,000 back then, which is equivalent to nearly $300,000 now, to have somebody come and try to help solve these murders. And White was given a lot of discretion in this investigation. And he was able to recruit and research and find his own team. So he put together a whole group of people from across the country that he believed could help him solve these. And he ultimately had pretty much everybody except him go undercover. And they would go undercover in different areas. And they were all trying to figure out and kind of befriend people and try to learn information. And they all had different background stories. And so they starts the investigation pretty much from the beginning. And he starts reviewing everything that local law enforcement or anybody has. He starts talking to different witnesses. Um, and at first, when he's investigating Anna's murder, he went back and started talking to Brian Burkhart again, who's Molly's brother-in-law, who was last seen with her. And he ended up figuring out that Brian had given this alibi saying that he was with his family um, around the time or after, later in the afternoon and evening. Um, You know, he says, I just dropped off Anna at her house and then I was with my family. However, somebody else said, White found this witness who said, actually, Brian was seen in the car with Anna. Oh. when he was supposed to be with his family. And his family couldn't confirm that? or um, I think his alibi was confirmed, but the idea was they think probably his family just lied for him. Yeah, exactly. And White ended up finding a second witness that placed Anna and Brian at a speakeasy. They talked to the speakeasy owner, actually, And the owner said that they were there until 1 a.m., not just mid-afternoon, like Brian had said. And ultimately, the last sighting of Brian and Anna together ended up being at 3 in the morning. So very different than mid-afternoon. Yeah. And Brian's brother or neighbor saw him return to his house at sunrise. So that's all starting to add up, that timeline. Yes. So it's obviously not what Brian had told authorities the first time. And throughout this investigation, White started suspecting that maybe they had a mole in their investigation. They had found a witness um, who said that he had been hired as a private detective. So this witness was supposed to be a private detective. He was supposed to be investigating all these murders. And he ultimately admitted to White that While he said he was supposed to be an investigator, he really was never actually hired to solve the murder. What? And he was really just hired and paid to conceal Brian Hill's whereabouts um, from the night of the murder. And William Hale was the one who uh, paid him. Okay. I think it's actually Brian Burkhart, not Hale, but William Hale's his uncle. Mm-hmm. So William Hale paid 
to have an alibi created for him. Mm. And when this witness met with Hale, um, Brian and Ernest Burkhart were also there. Um, and so obviously they know this is not, it's not panning out exactly. No. So then White, you know, he's still investigating. He's investigating Bill's last days before the explosion. And he ended up figuring out that there had been a private meeting between the Sean brothers, who are doctors in town, and a lawyer. Um, And during this meeting, Bill had revealed that his only enemies were William Hale and Ernest Burkhart. Oh. And... It was later determined as well that James Sean, who was one of the, the doctors in town, had been named the administrator of the estate of Bill Smith um, after he was, he was, he was dead, even though they were like kind of tied mm-hmm. to William Hale. Um, so the Sean brothers... They were the only ones that could actually execute the will, um, as well as the head rights of Rita and Minnie. What? Oh, this seems like there's no separation of power. There is not. Here. And they're doctors? They're doctors. Okay. But they're also being the administrator of estates for random people. Okay. Now, the odd thing, or I guess another horrible thing that happened to the Osage people is being able to be an administrator or an executor really was desirable because they charged the Osage people such high fees to administer their affairs. And then they would get taken advantage of. Um, and White was starting to see this. So he was starting to look, as he's looking into all of this, he's starting to realize that a lot of these guardians that were in charge of the Osage people were corrupt. Yeah, you think? Right. So they're charging super high fees. Um, They were getting kickbacks. So they were making their wards shop at certain stores. And then those stores were giving the guardians kickbacks. Yeah, because what did they expect to happen from a system where you put perfectly capable people under the control of people who want the resources that those people have? Yes. The other thing that they would do, like another sketchy example, was... The guardians would buy something. So one example was a guardian bought a car for $250 and then turned around and sold it to his ward for $1,250. So he made a $1,000 profit because he had purchased the car first and then way upcharged on it. That's ridiculous. It's all ridiculous. Yes. One study estimated that at least $8 million was stolen by guardians by 1925. And that, I bet that is underreported. I bet. I bet that there's even more. Yeah. So, I mean, it, that's a huge number, though. $8 million mm-hmm. of essentially, like, embezzling, kind yeah. of. And sometimes these guardians, too, White found, did not look out for the best interest of, of their people. Um, in one case, the guardian took this widow's possessions, falsely informed her that she had no money. And this poor widow was living with no bed. She had no chairs in her house. 
Um, she didn't really have enough money to even buy food for her and her children. Mm. And her youngest baby ended up getting sick. And so she begged her guardian to help her. Um, and the guardian wouldn't turn in, turn over any money and kept telling her that she didn't have anything when in fact she did. The baby ended up dying and the guardian just would not turn over the money. So White's starting to, you know, investigate the different guardians and one of his undercover operatives had gone in and tried to buy a house in the Osage area. And he met with this woman, and the woman ended up saying that this entire area was really controlled by William Hale. And Hale had, this witness also admitted, Hale had his employees start that fire that burned thousands of his acres. What? He started it for insurance money. Of course. Or had his employees start it. Because everything here is a scam. Right. And so White starts getting suspicious about Hale, and he starts looking into why William Hale is a beneficiary for Roan's policy. Because yeah, that's just weird. sketchy. I guess it's weird. Yes. So he ended up finding out that Hale had actually independently pushed for Roan to purchase this policy. The life insurance policy? Yes. So Hale had pressured him to purchase this life insurance policy. And Hale had promised that he would pay for the premium on the insurance. Okay. Whoa. That is a red flag. If anybody ever tells you, you need, hey, you should get life insurance and make me the beneficiary. Absolutely not. That is a one-way ticket to being murdered. Yes. That is usually a good first step. By that person. Yes. So William Hale had actually wanted $25,000. He was the one that was pushing for such a high insurance policy back then. But when they went to buy the policy, the broker ended up telling him that Hale would have to be a creditor in order to be a beneficiary on Roan's life insurance policy. So Hale ended up saying that he owed, Roan owed him ten dollars to $12,000. But there was no proof of the debt. He just said, hey, you know, he owes, owes me this amount. The other kind of hiccup was that in order to receive a life insurance policy, a doctor had to write off on it. However, Roan was known to be a very, very heavy drinker. And so Hill essentially had to go shopping, trying to find a doctor who would actually approve this, this policy. I mean, he's go. you mean to tell me that at every single point? In this process, he never was like, maybe I shouldn't do this. No. So the first policy application was actually rejected. As it should be. Yes. So then on the second, they went to a different company to try to get a different life insurance policy. And Hale actually ended up lying on the application because one of the questions is, have you ever been denied an insurance policy? And they put no. And so when, by the time they got to that second policy, though, somehow mysteriously, Roan's debt had grown to $25,000. Was there any basis for this? I mean, was he borrowing more money? I don't think so. So White was, White was questioning that, too, of like, why, how does he owe this much money? Mm-hmm. And so he ended up looking at the debt 
the the loan promi- loan promissory note uh-huh. and they ended up determining that the note had been forged of course it had right so this doctor one of the doctors um actually ended up asking hale if he was going to kill kill roan fair question and hale just said hell yes while laughing what yeah oh my gosh and so White also found out that there was other sketchy stuff going on with Hale and Roan. Um, he had visited after Roan's death. Um, Hale had visited the widow many times and kept trying to pressure her into signing documents, but she didn't really know what they were. And so she never signed anything. But he did bring her whiskey as a gift. I hope she didn't drink it. She did not because she thought it was poisoned. Because it probably was. Yes. So the wife was also, Roan's wife was really suspicious because the whole time that Roan was alive, Hale repeatedly had asked if Roan would sell him his head right. I mean, this man, this poor man, he had been scoping him out from the beginning. For a long time, yeah. And he had given so many hints that he was going to kill him. Yeah, so... Roan had asked, or Hale had asked Roan so many times about buying his head right, except you can't sell your head right. Yeah, but you can get a life insurance policy and make right. someone a beneficiary. Um, and oh. so Roan and, you know, Roan would always deny it. No matter how drunk he got, he would always, always say no to, um, you know, selling it. And Roan's wife kind of thought that part of the reason why he was like, he she pretty much thought Hale maybe getting him drunk trying to get convince him to sell the head right. Exactly. And Hale at the same time was really lobbying to change the laws so that um, Osage people could sell their head rights. Of course he was because that benefited him. Yes. So the only way that head rights actually passed is um, they have to be inherited. So that's the only way that you can pass a head right. And so White is studying all of this and he's starting to look at all the different players and he starts realizing as he's tracking it, all of the head rights are going to Molly Burkhart. So, and then he realizes that Molly Burkhart is married to Hale's nephew Mm -hmm. who considers Hale pretty much his surrogate father. Yeah. So the way it worked was Anna Brown was divorced and childless. So she had nobody to inherit down her line. It Mm -hmm. had to go back up to her mom. Mm -hmm. So her mom had been, had gotten everything. So Anna's head right went to Lizzie. Who had her own, right? Yeah, Lizzie had her own. So White was thinking that by killing Anna first... They were trying to make sure that the head rights were not getting split. Yeah. So Lizzie then willed hers to her daughters, Molly and Rita, because Rita was still alive when Lizzie passed away. The odd thing was, was Rita and Bill's will said that if they died simultaneously, that much of Rita's head right would go to Molly. However, and coincidentally, this crazy freak thing happened. Yes. And they died almost simultaneously, right. not quite. But the will talked about that. Oh. 
So the will said that if Bill outlived Rita, he would inherit most of her wealth. Mm. And then upon his death, it would go to his heirs, not back into to Molly Burkhart. Yeah. Or the rest of, of the, the sisters or whoever was left. So ultimately, um, it did go to his heirs. Rita's, most of it went to Rita. So that or to, plan. Or to Bill's heirs. It did not go to Rita's heirs. So that plot was foiled. It did. Um, but they start looking at all of this. And they realize that the bulk of this wealth is going to Molly. But Molly is deemed incompetent. And so the wealth is controlled by Ernest Hale. Or Ernest William, Burkhart. Ernest Burkhart. Whoa. Who's pretty much under the control of William Hale. Now, the problem was, is even though White thinks, you know, he's figured this out, he's cracked the case. The problem is, is there is no physical evidence. And there's not really any witnesses. Until obviously it's not enough to charge anybody with a crime or take it to a trial. So he started... Really trying to find people to, to, you know, back up this theory that he has. And so he found this criminal, probably not the best witness, but he found this guy who was offered $2,000 to kill an old man and an Osage wife. No names were given, but that was the definition. Hmm. He also mentioned that he knew someone else who knew about the explosion and the actual bomb. Um, but that gentleman had been killed. Hmm. And then, oddly, Grammer, who was that moonshine guy, he ended up dead, too, from a fatal solo car, car crash. Everyone that comes close to this investigation yeah. mysteriously dies. So the actual bomb maker um, from the bomb from Rita and Bill's house... See, funny thing is that guy was also a criminal and who would have thought, right? He wanted to break into a store to steal some diamonds and he did. But when he did, Hale was there and shot him. So this is all coming full circle. Yeah. So then as White's researching, he ends up figuring out that the whole reason the bomb maker was even in the store that day was because Hale had told him about the diamonds and set up the heist to try to steal the diamonds where he then shot him yes um because again set up yes they ended up thinking that grammar's solo car accident was a setup as well because they think the brakes and the steering had been tampered with i bet they had been and then you know there were some other witnesses who may have some information that ended up poisoned another one ended up bludgeoned to death so people are just dropping left and right. Hale is starting to become, right, the number one suspect. Oh, yeah. And he starts giving away ponies trying to save his reputation. What? Yes, ponies. Okay. Um, and so he's just trying. He's kind of going into panic mode, trying to save himself. And at the same time, White was meeting with the governor of Oklahoma and during this meeting, he said that there is, you know, there is this witness. And White went to meet this witness in prison. And this man ended up saying that he had once worked for Bill Smith, but Bill Smith had an affair with his wife. And so he didn't work for him anymore after. Understandable. After that. Um, 
But this man also knew William Hale. And this man had been asked to blow up Smith and his wife. So blow up Bill and Rita. Oh. And this man at first, he didn't agree. But he said that Hale came to see him um, after he had been arrested. Um, and or actually first, Hale had come to see him and promised him $5,000 to do the job. Hale told him, you know, you can use nitroglycerin and you just place a fuse under the house. You pull the fuse out about three feet and he pulls a fuse out from his pocket, Hale does, and shows him how to use it. Well, then he ended up getting arrested for a completely different charge. And Hale, as the reserve deputy, was able to get access to him while he was sitting in jail. And during that time, he said, Hale came in and approached him and told him, you know, now that you've been arrested, you might need some money for an attorney. So, you know, you need this money. I have a job I need to get done. Oh, gosh. And so the man agreed because he knew he was going to need money for his legal fees. Which are about to increase because he's about to do something bad. Yes. So the sheriff ended up letting him out of jail walked him out where Hale and Ernest were waiting in a car and they took him to a different building um, where there was a box with nitroglycerin and a fuse and so they drove him Ernest and Hale drove him dropped him off at Bill and Rita's house the man went into the cellar and placed um, sat placed the bomb and sat in wait and then once he knew that people were home and it was like dark and everybody was asleep, right? It's three in the morning. Um, he lit the fuse and ran. And then Hale and Ernest picked him up. They took him back to jail. They snuck him back into his cell. Everybody was fine. Except the people Except who died. Rita. But yeah, nobody caught caught him. Nobody was really even wiser that he had been out, you know, in the middle of the night when all the other prisoners were sleeping. White was starting to get freaked out, right? There's too many ties. There's too many connections. He started sleeping at his office with a gun. And he actually found a dynamite stick in his window at one point. Jeez. These people are everywhere. Yeah. So around the same time, White starts hearing reports that Molly is sick. Oh, no. And she's just not doing well. And White starts being concerned that she was actually being poisoned because that was the only way that Ernest would inherit all of the fortunes. Yeah. Without her being in the picture. And White was beginning to think that maybe how Molly was being poisoned because she was so cautious and had locked herself away, they thought maybe it's the insulin that she's receiving from the Sean brothers. Oh. <gasps> So they're poisoning, possibly poisoning her drugs that she needs. Yes. So with all of this information, White ends up getting a warrant, an arrest warrant for Hale and Ernest Burkhart on January 4th, 1925. And this arrest warrant was just for the murders of Bill and Rita Smith, as well as Nettie, who was their servant. Um, They were able to find Ernest with no problem. However, Hale had heard that he was going to be arrested. It had caught up to him. 
So he went and ordered a new suit of clothes. New suit. Uh, he was planning on leaving town. And so White and his men were kind of on a time clock trying to catch him before he left town. Except he showed up into the sheriff's office in his finest attire so he could be arrested. Now, White and his team realized that they needed more information to be able to successfully prosecute them. And so they thought one way that they could get that information was if they got a confession out of somebody. And they thought between Hale and Ernest, Ernest is the weak, weak link. Yeah. He's definitely not the brightest. Hale is kind of the mastermind behind yes. this. So they decide to start talking to Ernest. And at first, Ernest wouldn't budge. He wouldn't tell them any sort of information. Um, Probably because everyone who's given any kind of information has ended up dead. Yeah. So around this same time, White receives a telegram that has Hale's signature on it from Texas. That was from the time that their witness was saying Hale was taking him to the murder site to set the bomb. Oh. So it's just poking a huge hole in White's theory and this witness's credibility. And he was getting, White was starting to get a lot of backlash for it because he didn't want to embarrass the FBI. He was getting backlash, but he kept going forward. And he ended up finding another witness who got an automobile as payment from Ernest for being involved in murders. And so when White and his team disclosed to Ernest, you know, I have a witness, pretty much, talk. Mm -hmm. Now is your chance. Start talking. Ernest wouldn't believe that they had a witness. So he did not want to talk. And so they ultimately ended up taking the witness bringing him into Ernest's cell, having the witness say, yeah, I, I did talk, right? I, you know, I disclosed all of this stuff. It's true. That was enough to get Ernest to start talking. So Ernest starts talking. He says that there was a plot to kill Bill and Rita through the explosion. Um, he said that he knew who killed Roan. Um, and so White was able to bring in the suspect for Roan's death, and the man ended up ultimately confessing. But Ernest would never say who killed Anna. Um, and so they just they he wouldn't he wouldn't say. Um, but they ended up removing Molly from her husband's care. And away oh. from Hale. As soon as Molly was removed, she immediately got better. Because something was going on. Yeah. However, even though she started feeling better, you know, after she separated from her husband, she separated from Hale, um, Molly wouldn't believe that Ernest had anything to do with these murders, particularly the murder of her sister. Well, yeah, I'd imagine that's kind of a, a shock. Yeah. You don't really want to believe that. So... White ended up figuring out that there were more benefits um, to Hale than what we were just thinking about inheriting just from, you know, Molly and her family. So a witness came forward that tied Hale to George Big Heart's murder. Um, there were witnesses who said that Hale had been near him 
um, and then made a claim on the estate for $6,000 after Big Heart had passed away. He was trying to collect $6,000. And Ernest ended up confessing that Hale had actually practiced how to, to forge Big Heart's signature so that he could create this promissory note to try to get the $6,000. Now, Joe Bates, he died rather quickly, the one from poisoning. Hale had actually produced the deed to his land and somehow took the land from him because somehow he had the deed. Now, the widow, after Joe Bates died, said that Hale had kept him drunk for over a year and would repeatedly ask... um, Bates to sell Hale, sell the land to Hale. How did he have time for all this? I have no idea. Um, But no matter how drunk he was, the man would always refuse. But the widow was like, well, even after all of this, like, even after his death, Hale still ended up with the land as he wanted. So White, as he's, you know, collecting all this information, he's trying to figure out the next step, which is prosecuting Hale and uh, Ernest. The problem was, is there was such corruption in the state system with, you know, the sheriff who won't do anything (laughs) like it just it's there's not a good track record. No. So he knew that the charges were just were not going to stick if they tried it in a state court. There would be bribing juries. There would be all sorts of different things. But White kind of found a loophole. He realized that Roan had been killed on an Osage allotment, which meant that. It was under, um, the owner was under guardianship and the guardianship, technically the guardian is the United States government. And so it made it federal land. Ah. So when the grand jury started, it didn't go well. Um, there was a pastor who was charged with committing perjury. So we're often not a great start. No. Um, there was another associate of Hale's that was trying to get witnesses drunk um people were starting to trail the witnesses and trying to make them disappear like there were attempted assassination attempts there's witness intimidation um and so white was really concerned that hale would even kill his own nephew he probably would have and so they actually took Ernest out of state and like put him under a fake name and kept him at hotels trying to keep him protected he kind of had to go into witness witness protection um Now, as this grand jury is going on, the court ends up determining that Roan's murder didn't actually happen on a tribal allotment. It ended up happening on an individual allotment. So it was not federal land. And so it was subject to state court jurisdiction. At the time it was. Yes. So by that point, once the testimony does start, um, Ernest flips his story. And... Once he actually was, like, faced with having to go up and sit in the witness stand and actually testify against his uncle. And then all of a sudden, um, Ernest has new lawyers. And his new lawyers are the same lawyers as William Hale. Mm. So probably not exactly his lawyers. Yeah. (laughs) But he's given legal counsel. Um, So another witness flipped as well. So now a couple of their very big witnesses are no longer testifying for them. Uh, around the same time, Hale started claiming that the agents had electrocuted him, trying to get a confession out. And so that was just another 
thing that made it back to the FBI where essentially the FBI the higher ups are starting to get embarrassed of like you're now electrocuting people trying to get a confession like what is going on um and the person they were able to get the person who shot Anna she uh, that person ended up testifying that Hale was the one who ordered the hit on Anna so that Ernest could inherit anything sadly during this time um Molly and Ernest's four-year-old daughter died, but that was the wake-up call that Ernest needed. He ended up discharging the lawyers that Hale had provided for him, and he changed his plea to guilty. And the court ended up accepting it, and he was ultimately sentenced to life imprisonment with hard labor. Around this same time as Ernest, who had flipped, and you know he got convicted, the United States Supreme Court had been considering, it had started making its way up the appeal system to determine, is it really federal land? And the court ended up coming back and saying that it was, in fact, federal land, and so federal court had jurisdiction. So they moved it back to federal court. And the trial ended up starting against Hale. And many witnesses were starting to approach Hale and say that they wouldn't testify if he could pull strings and get them out of jail. So he had that much power that witnesses are thinking they can get out of testifying and out of jail for their crimes if Hale just helps them. I mean, I'd rather be in jail than outside in a world with him running on the loose. Yes. Uh, White ended up uncovering a plan during this that Hale did, in fact, want Ernest killed. And there was a plan to take him down to Mexico and have him killed, where they would never find his body. Not surprising. So the the federal trial didn't get off to, I mean, it's already not off to a great start. But the first jury panel actually had to be dismissed because Hale was bribing them. How does he just have, is he not arrested at this point? No, he is. He's arrested. But who's going to watch him? The, The sheriff? Who's I like guess. his buddy? How were they contact? How was he contacting anybody? Well, he was getting able to get somebody in and out of jail. Yeah, I guess to true. go commit a crime. Like I don't think it's the strongest security system here. That's a good point. So, as this trial was starting, the Osage people were honestly really concerned. Um, one Osage person was quoted as saying, "It is a question in my mind whether this jury is considering a murder case or not." The question for them is to decide whether a white man killing an Osage is murder or cruelty to animals. Wow. Which is just such a powerful quote. Yeah, Um, because, I mean, that's that was the perspective. So Hale was charged with aiding and abetting to the murder of Roan. And then Ramsey, the gentleman who actually pulled the trigger, he was charged with murder. Ernest did end up testifying that Hale had wanted to kill Roan with poisoned moonshine. Um, And he also testified that Hale ended up being upset with how Ramsey ended up pulling the trigger because the plan originally was to um, make it look like a suicide. Like he just drove out, you know, by himself and ended up committing suicide. But instead, when Ramsey shot him, he had shot him in the back of the head, which obviously, you know, a suicide, you're not going to do it from the back of your head. Yeah. And the other concern was 
it was like so far back and then went out. This is the one where it went out of his right eye and through the windshield. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously no gun in the car. So not clearly not a suicide. So, but Hale was mad that it didn't look like that. Even with all of this evidence, the jury was a hung jury, meaning that they couldn't make a decision. Yeah, because half of them were being paid, probably. Probably. And so this kind of just reiterated that feeling that the Osage people had of whether a white man can be charged with the murder of an Osage person. And they also were a little discouraged because previously, um, Brian Burkhart had actually been charged with Anna's murder uh, a long time ago, you know, kind of before White had been involved in investigating. And they also had a hung jury there. And so they were really questioning, could a white person be held Mm -hmm. accountable for a murder of an Osage person? So after this hung jury, the Osage people were outraged. And the federal agents ultimately ended up having to protect Hale because they were so concerned that people would retaliate. Mm Mm-hmm. And they, White immediately, and the prosecutors immediately started taking steps to retry him. They had found out that one of Hale's lawyers had offered money for to a witness to flip his story before testifying. And when the witness refused, the attorney appears to have pointed a gun oh. um, at the witness to try to intimidate him and actually threatened to kill him. So they took, the prosecutors took a different strategy on the second case so they ended up retrying Hale and they really focused on just streamlining streamlining the case and making it more simple so they able were able to complete the second trial and Hale and Ramsey were both found guilty of murder and this case because it was murder should have been a death penalty case it should have been a capital murder case however the jury took that off the table they just said life imprisonment um before the judge even sentenced they like took the death penalty off the table Hmm. so years later um after hale's and ramsey's murder trial there was a trial for anna's death and the shooter ended up flipping his story and the shooter ended up being convicted by that point Molly had figured out what kind of person Ernest was and had left him. Now, after these trials, the Osage people publicly recognized the Bureau for all of their work and had advocated for a change in the law so that a person um, could not inherit a head right unless they were at least 50% Osage. Which is how it should be. Yes. Hale never officially admitted any of his involvement regarding any of these murders, but he did say at one point um, about the murders that it was all a business transaction. That was like the closest thing he ever said to an admission. Oh. Ernest was paroled eventually, even though he was supposed to be spending a very long time in prison with hard labor. He was paroled, and the same day he was paroled, he robbed an Osage home and was immediately sent back to prison. Oh. He did get out, though, in 1959, um, but he was barred from returning to Oklahoma. I didn't know you could bar someone from a state. So, I mean, back then, there's a lot of things that you could do that you probably can't do anymore. Right. 
he ended up going to New Mexico and worked um, on a sheep farm where he made $75 a month. Previously, all of his money came from Molly. Well, yeah. He was a chauffeur. He didn't really ever do much. So he didn't have a lot of of money on his own. Um, He eventually did ask for a pardon from the Oklahoma governor so that he could return to Oklahoma, and it was granted. So he was able to return to Oklahoma, and he died in 1986. Now, Hale, in 1947, he was released from Leavenworth Prison after spending 20 years. Um, So he served 20 years, and he was released due to his advanced age and his good prison record. Mm, Like, let's just forget about all the people who died. Right. He ended up dying in 1962 in an Arizona nursing home. Oh, so he too got out of the state. And he had 15 more years of free life. Wow. Yeah. Um, Molly did eventually remarry to a part white, part Creek Indian man. Um, She was eventually deemed competent and recognized as a full-fledged American citizen. And she died in 1937 at the age of 50. So she was still young. Yeah. But she was at least deemed competent and able to handle her own affairs before her death. White ended up leaving the Bureau to become the warden of Leavenworth Prison, which is funny because that's where Hale and Ramsey spent their time. Irony. Yes. And he stayed in the prison system until he retired at the age of 70 and he ended up dying in 1971. Now, the Osage people, they were hit very, very hard by the Great Depression. The barrels of, of oil were um, that were $3 a barrel were now 65 cents in 1931, and the headright payments ended up dropping to less than $800. Uh, the oil started running out. Many of the, the towns began uh, really dying off because the oil wasn't producing as much so they didn't have as many prospectors there there weren't people in the oil camps so the towns really started dying off um eventually the the wells ended up going down to about ten thousand wells and they would only generate like 15 barrels a day compared to 600 and something um the leases started selling for maybe fifteen thousand, which is a big difference right huge difference um they ultimately ended up stopping all drilling in 2014 and the headright payments are not enough to live off of anymore it kind of will like help supplement your income the income and that's about it um and so the osage people are living off of the profits that they make from their casinos and in 2011 though they did receive a settlement from the u.s government for 380 million dollars which was to compensate is still thriving though they have their own constitution they have their own elected members their own court system um they have a really great website that you can check out and it has like a ton of information um, about the tribe they now have about twenty thousand members with four thousand living in osage county in oklahoma still now the author of the book had Uh, gone to these towns and had actually started speaking with some of the uh, surviving family members from 
Molly Burkhart and other, you know, other people who, who we've covered in this story. And so the author had met Margie Burkhart and she was, she is the granddaughter of Molly Burkhart and her father, so Molly's son had told her that the night of the explosion that Rita and Bill died in, um, her, so Margie's dad, um, and his sister and Molly were all planning on staying the night at Rita's house that night. So they were all going to die. Yes. So essentially the only reason that they are alive was because Molly's son had an earache and they ended up staying home. Wow. So Ernest was going to kill his wife, his kids, his sister-in-law, and his brother-in-law all at once. Oh my gosh. Um, The author also started investigating some of the other murders that were not connected to Hale um, because there were other murders that were going on at the same time. It wasn't just William Hale causing all of these deaths. Some have not been tied to him. Um, And they started looking at the Guardians and they found out that um, one Guardian had seven of his nine wards die. So th- Which, I mean, that whole entire program was very sketch. But they're starting to think that some of these these guardians were possibly killing off their wards to try to inherit or do something sketchy. The other thing was at this time, when they, you do the calculation on the national death rate, the Osage rate was one and a half times higher than the national rate when... Really, it should have been higher considering they had more money than majority of the country. Yeah. And so it's just people were killing them for their money. Mm-hmm. So that is the, the end um, of the story of the Osage people. Uh, the book is called Killer of the Flower Moon. It's a 2017 book by David Graham. Um, but that is is my case for this week. That's a crazy one. It's really crazy. There's so many twists and turns. There is a lot. Yeah. And there's like a ton more that I did not cover. That is like the basic broken down storyline that is still two hours long. Wow. Well, no need to go see the movie now when it comes out. I really want to see it though. It looks so good. I have to see it. It looks so good. So yeah. That's well, that it. Was, that was a good one. I'm now second time's the charm. It is. Hopefully the audio works here. And if it doesn't. Oh, good Lord. <sighs> I don't know what we'll do. Go back to recording remotely. I guess so. We're going to have to go back to being in different rooms again. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Hopefully this works. Hopefully. All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. Um, if you haven't already, go share like follow us leave us a rating on wherever you listen like it really helps if we listen or if you listen on apple podcasts or i think spotify you can leave a review yeah spotify okay other than that you can find us on facebook at a place in the courtroom podcast you can find us on instagram at a place in the courtroom we have a uh tiktok we do we do i believe it's just place in the courtroom uh, you can email us at a place in the courtroom at gmail.com. 
You can find us on our website at www.aplaceinthecourtroompodcast.com. Um, so yeah, go like, follow, share our stuff. Again, it's very important. That's why we say it twice. Yep. All right. And other than that, we will see you in the next episode. All right. Mm-hmm.